Hi, I'm Wadeen Koenig-Bricker. I'm an editor and author, a studier of life, a lover of cats in Egypt. And today on Curiosity Bites, we're going to be talking about Egyptology and icons and saints because of my new book, Dinner Party with the Saints. But we're also going to be talking about words and how words matter and about how your life is changed by the words you use. And we're going to touch upon current events and probably a few other things as well, like foods that might have been interesting in ancient times. Join us, stay tuned. Welcome to another delicious episode of Curiosity Bites, the most binge-worthy podcast on the internet. If you could have a dinner party, who would you invite? Would you invite someone from history? Hmm, think about that. If you would like to join in our conversation about today's show or any of our past shows, you can go over to Curiosity Bites page on Facebook. By the way, my name is Dove Barron. I'm your host. And you can find out more about me and how I advise and guide those who are at the top of their game to truly discover what's next. Come on over to DoveBarron.com or you can actually email me D-O-V-Dove at D-O-V-B-A-R-O-N dot com. All right, let's get back to our question. If you could have a dinner party and you could invite anyone from history, who would you invite and what would you feed them? Because it's dinner party, right? Would you invite some wise person like Socrates? Maybe movie stars, maybe artists or scientists or inventors. What about saints? Why saints? Maybe you're not even a Catholic. Maybe you don't even believe in saints. Well, that's the rabbit hole we're about to enter on this delicious episode of Curiosity Bites. So grab a beverage in a cozy corner because our guest on this episode is Woodine. Woodine Koenig Bricker. She is an author somewhere <laughs> of somewhere around 13 books of her own and more books than she can possibly remember that she's written for other people. She has edited national magazines. She's written hundreds of ma uh, magazine articles. She's written for magazines, newspapers. She served as the fairy buck mother or midwife for dozens of authors and their books. She has the ability to create magic by helping authors express their ideas better than they'd ever dreamed possible. As well as being an author and an editor, she is a highly respected expert on Catholic history. And <clears throat> would you believe it? She is an Egyptologist studying at the University of Manchester in England. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together and help me welcome my friend and editor, also known as the Dog Whisperer, Woody Overwhelming introduction, but yeah. <laughs> well, good. It's so good to have you here. Um, so, just in the, in the purpose of transparency, for so everybody knows, uh, Woody and I have known each other for about what must be ten years now. Coming on, right? Oh yeah, probably about ten years. Yeah, and uh, Woody is the one who has uh, saved my bacon in the context of my writing. That she helps me to flush out my ideas and actually make sense of it so people can, <laughs> so it's readable. But where we always need to start, where we always want to start is, what is it that you find yourself curious about at this time? What is it you find yourself most curious about? Right now, uh, I mean, I have two trains of curiosity. 
I mean, there's one sort of a, a meta train and there's sort of a, a micro train. Because you mentioned the Egyptology, the uh, current fascination of mine is how ancient Egyptian art with its conventions, you know, people, you recognize what Egyptian art looks like if you see mm -hmm. it. I mean, it's very clear. How I believe that that has evolved into the icons of the saints that are present in the, the you know, the Eastern churches. Uh, there's some of the conventions are very similar. And, you know, if I go on to get a doctorate, I think that's what I would really like to explore is how how that ancient Egyptian art style evolved through the Coptic tradition has now become the Byzantine and Russian icons that we have today because the conventions are so similar. Wow, that is fascinating. So, so I was not going to go there till till much later. So, but I want to because now you've pulled me down that path. Thank you, and I love it. Um, so, you know, uh, we've got the divergence of, of the Catholic faith because we've got the Coptic and Gnostic, and we've got the more Roman. Um, but the, the Coptic and, and Gnostic, as you said, the artwork is quite different. It, very. It, you know, it's very different than traditional Roman. So that heritage or that roots in uh, Egyptian art is, is quite fascinating. What do you see? What, what sort of comes to the fore? Well, for one thing, you, in, in, even in modern, I, with modern icons, you don't paint an icon, you write an icon. Mm. you use the word right because you don't view an icon you read an icon huh. even though it's a visual medium because the position of the hands and the colors and all of these things have meaning and so when you look at it it looks like this sort of stylized um like maybe the artist doesn't know how to portray things correctly and you know the images don't they don't look realistic well, that's because they're not supposed to be realistic. They're oh. supposed to convey an internal meaning, <coughs> excuse me, um, to the to the viewer. Um, how many fingers the the individuals holding up? Where the halos are? They overlapping? Whose is on top? All of this has meaning. <clears throat> and in another life, I actually painted icons, so I have have some experience in in how you build them up. Well. In ancient Egypt, there was no word for painting. They mm. wrote on their walls, the same mm. word. And you didn't view a wall, you didn't view a, an image, you read it. And, wow. and the images have the same, you can look at an ancient, a picture of an ancient Egyptian wall, and I'm not an expert at it, maybe I will become an expert at some point in exactly how to do this, but it's fascinating me the size of the individuals, how they're facing, how their hands are turned, what their hair looks like, their color, their, all, that all has meaning. Mm -hmm. So that you can look at it and say, all right, here's a picture of a man. And then you see a, a, like a small figure next to him with a, a, a side lock, which is called mm -hmm. the side lock of youth. And yet, you know, from history that this, when the tomb painting was done, that this person that's identified was you know with the side lock of youth is was there in their 40s well why are they showing them as a you know a little boy well it's to show the relationship it's to show the father-son relationship 
So you're reading this, you're not looking for portraits like we look for, but right. you're looking for the imagery and you're looking to read it behind that. Now, the same thing is true for icons that you mm. read them, you see what, what they say. There's also the image of um, Isis and Horus and the gods have been pulled almost directly into yeah into the iconography you can see you know the goddess holding her her infant on her lap is identical yeah. to the position that the madonna holds yeah, the madonna holding the baby jesus and and isis holding holding horus which is a parallel story for those of you who don't know it you is. go read it you'll go what <laughs> and it's, it predates it's a, a little bit. You know, it's, so. a, it's a very parallel story. And the imagery is, is completely parallel. Yeah. So I find that I'm thinking, all right, what does this say to us about deeper truth? Yeah. What does this say to us about, you know, human longing? And what does it say to us about the need for to portray the other world in an otherworldly fashion? Hmm. So, 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 so can I ask you them? Because, um, yes. you know, um, Leonardo da Vinci, The Last Supper, yes. right? Um, in uh, the, 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 the painting of The Last Supper, there's a lot of that where people are talking about reading that painting yes. versus seeing that painting. Uh, and Michelangelo, uh, da Vinci, they both did that. They, the positions of hands and and where the the character in the image was looking yes. um, is that all the same thing is that the same um iconology of of reading versus seeing yes it is oh. because you're supposed to be able to if if you know what the code says right then you know what the artist is trying to tell you and that's so how do you know the code well, that's a that's a trick. <laughs> because sometimes sometimes the artist kept his or her code secret, oh, okay. in the uh, because they were trying to either deceive or to present an image that was like in the case of, of Leonardo and and Michelangelo that would have gone against some church teachings. They were trying to portray their own belief systems that might not have been quite in line with what the authorities were wanting. Mm -hmm. Although for say egyptian art and for icons it's written out i mean you you, you we know what it is it's come oh. down through history and we're, we're told you know like if in an icon if the infant jesus is showing the sole of his foot so that his foot is facing out he's he's representing his humanity right as opposed to the up the back of his foot which would represent his divinity and if you know Mary's cloak has stars on it where the stars are we know that that if the star if there are three stars that it represents that she was a virgin before during and after the birth of Jesus it depends on you know where they put the stars those things are all have all been conventions that are in existence just like there is a whole convention for Egyptian art that we know what they had to do and they had to follow and the other thing that's kind of fascinating to me is that you when you do an icon you do your roughing out um of this of the sketch um with generally with with red paint not always but generally mm -hmm. with red paint 
and then you correct the lines in black and you do the ancient Egyptians did the exact same thing. They roughed out all their drawings in red ink and then the master would come in and correct them with black ink for the final. Wow. So that there, that parallel has just really struck me. Um, and that's fascinating. And the imagery, you can always recognize Isis, for instance, or you can always recognize Hathor, or you can always recognize Thoth, because there are certain things that have to be present in the image of that person or that god or that whatever. They just, not just their features, but there are certain other aspects that are always present. And that's the same thing with the icons of the saints. There's certain things that have to be present in them mm -hmm. that tell you you're looking at this particular saint. Uh, for instance, Mary Magdalene, almost always, now there's always some variation, even in ancient Egyptian art, there was variation because people are creative and they stick what creativity they can into things. But she's almost always holding up a red egg. Mm. And even if you saw a random woman holding up a red egg, you would know that that was supposed to be Mary Magdalene because the, the legend goes that the emperor said, I will only believe in Jesus if the egg in your hand turns red. And so she held it up and it turned bright red. Oh. So she's always holding up this red egg. So if you see an icon and you're not sure who it is and it's holding up a red egg, you can go, ah, Mary Magdalene, there it is. That That's is so is. fascinating because, I mean, before we had language in, in the way that we understand it written language you know we had hieroglyphics you know we had the sumerian text which is again hieroglyphics which <coughs> predates egyptian you know we've got the we've got the egyptian text you know that again is the hieroglyphics and it's it's reading through imagery and so it's very interesting that that history is in the art art is in the history but art is actually outside of history because it is the creative and it expands beyond so yes. it's this wonderful interesting intricacy uh, and almost a dance between well and of course that's part of the challenge a dance between what is real and what is the creative expression that is really quite fascinating i can see why that would be uh, a point of curiosity <laughs> and and the other aspect of it that that is intriguing to me mm -hmm. is that even though you have these conventions even though the egyptians had the conventions even though contemporary icons have conventions the artist's style still is present mm -hmm. you can still see the individual person so this is the work of that create we don't know whose is because part of the the part of the point is to keep it completely anonymous right in both cases it's not the artist who is right. important it's the product that's important but you can still see that certain artists who paint icons have a certain style and they just can't get away from that and that's true in egyptian art too you can see on the tombs you can say yeah that looks like the same person painted those this painting and that painting because there's just something about us and our creative nature and even when we are doing to a convention we mm -hmm. can't help but be authentic in our own expressions we just are unless yeah. 
copying. That, that intersection of creativity is, is a fascinating one. Um, but I, 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 this calls to a question uh, about you, which is, for most people, the idea of you being quite a Catholic scholar and a writer and being an Egyptologist seems a little diametrically opposed, particularly for most people who don't understand the parallel stories like we just talked about with Horus and Isis and, uh, and the Madonna and Child. But outside of the artist, artistry, those seem to be very... It seems like if you were a traditional... Making it up is totally judgmental. If you were a traditional Catholic, all that would be denied and, and pushed aside, particularly at a religious side of it. And, and if you were into Egyptology, you're probably not even into the Catholic stuff. So tell us about that beautiful combination, that, 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 um, that particular recipe for curiosity for you, because it, it is fascinating. Well, it started... Um when I was very young, I mean, the first book that I ever read was about the exploration of the tomb of King Tut, the first right. chapter book that I ever read. And I became fascinated by it. But, I, but as a young girl growing up in rural Montana, the chances of becoming an Egyptologist were a little remote. There wasn't I mean, there wasn't any Egyptian tombs in Montana? <laughs> didn't even know how you would go about doing that you know, <laughs> on the other side of the world. So, you know, my, my interest was always there, but I didn't really have any way of of uh, exploring that. Um, I think very early on, uh, beyond before I could, I can identify a time, uh, I realized that the Judeo-Christian tradition and Egypt were linked Mm -hmm. in ways that we don't always dissect out. Right. I mean, um, but they have been there present all along, um, you know, in going back into um, the Hebrew history, you know, Joseph was taken into Egypt and he became yep. vizier, he became or the prime minister of Egypt. So, you know, there's a big deal there that, you know, mm-hmm. he was, Egypt was the breadbasket of the world and he was feeding his people. Then we get the story of Moses, you know, that, that he's coming out of Egypt, the exodus comes out of Egypt. Um, then in the New Testament or the Christian Testament, Mary and Joseph are allegedly, they fled into Egypt when Jesus was young. So we've got this, and some of the most, the earliest Christian churches were found in Egypt. And Egypt was such a, uh, had such a profound influence on the whole region that I think mm-hmm. that, that if you don't look at what Egypt was, how do, how do you understand the Exodus, for instance, if you don't understand Egypt? But, but for me, when I think about the way that it's traditionally portrayed, is Egypt is this bad guy. You know, it's the bad guy nation um, that, that it, we are trying to forget about uh, as we move into a more modern age of Christianity. Um, uh, and even more modern Judaism. So the Jews are, ex- uh, you know, doing an exodus from Egypt. You know, Jesus is is leaving that world behind. It's almost like it's. I've always felt like, 
you know, we know, I mean, we refer to ancient Egypt, right? We refer to the ancient texts of Egypt or, or the ancient knowledge of Egypt. But it's almost like it's, I don't feel like it's part of history. I feel like it's pushed away. Do you know what I mean? I do. Right. You know, they, the saying that, you know, history belongs to the victors. Exactly. And uh, theology belongs to the dominant faith. Exactly. And so since Judeo-Christianity has become the dominant faith tradition in the West, mm -hmm. then the imagery of Egypt just has, has by nature had to become suppressed and, and pressed back. Mm -hmm. uh, but that I think is more a function of who wrote the texts and mm -hmm. who was who was paying attention to them. Right. And if you look at the history of the Middle East from an Egyptian point of view, the Hebrews are mentioned once. They weren't a big deal, you know, no. because they just they just weren't a big deal. So you're reading your we read scripture and we assume that this was the central viewpoint of the world and it's not. It wasn't at all. Um, just as a little aside, the great leader Moses <clears throat> Moses is has been adopted as a as a Jewish name, but it is not a Jewish name. No, definitely not. He probably was Tutmosis after, the, which was a, a, a Egyptian name. There were pharaohs named Tutmosis, um, which means something like born out of the waters of the god or something like that. It kind mm -hmm. of it kind of has that sort of a, a connotation. So I've always thought that that's probably what his original name was. I don't have any evidence for this, but that was probably what his name was. And then when he left Egypt, he just dropped the tut part, which is the thut part, which is the god, and then it became out of the waters. And that mm. therefore the story of the bulrushes and taking out of the waters. But I've always suspected and you know we have to think, all right, he was Egyptian. He was yeah. raised in an Egyptian court. He yeah. was thoroughly and completely and totally Egyptian. Yeah. So, but again, that's another parallel story. It is. If you look at the history, you know, just like we've just done with Horus and Isis and Madonna and Child, it, the the story of a, a baby found in a basket floating down the river uh, who becomes a great leader. I think there are something like eight references to that if, in ancient texts. You know, uh, including Sumerian texts. And it, yes. so all these things are, there's so many parallels of them uh, um, that one either says, well, interesting synchronicity, or we say, hmm, is it just an old story gets repeated and put into a new timeline? It's, it's, I'm not saying it's one or the other. I'm, you know, I'm saying it's fascinating that we do this, you know, whether we look at, uh, uh, Gilgamesh and the flood or whether you look at Noah's Ark and the flood it's there's these parallel stories that took place in very different times was it a completely different flood was it the same flood is it just retold in a different history you know so all these things are very interesting to me in the way that they come together but we what do you think about the fact that we seem to compartmentalize and we don't you know like we just talked about this we don't pull through the thread from one thing to the next you know so we want to go oh catholic it's on its own jewish it's it's on its own or jewish faith it's on its own but they're not they're all tied right and and essentially are tied to the egyptian 
So you had this fascination as a kid with the Egyptian, but you were brought up in the Catholic faith. Right. Was that okay? Well, it probably wouldn't have been okay if I told anybody about it. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a secret passion. So yeah, I'm, I'm sure that the nuns would not have been overly thrilled if I had stood up in catechism class and suddenly announced, you know, the Madonna is a lot like ISIS. I'm sure that would not have gone over terribly, terribly yeah, you well. You've got the ruler on the knuckles. That's okay. <laughs> I don't think that would have been been very, um, very well received. Uh, but it's not just religion, Dov, that that happens to. I mean, that's why to kind mm. of cycle back to this book that I just wrote, people don't have any context. They people have no context. Now, if I if I say to you that, you know, Francis of Assisi, I'm sure you, you know, everybody's heard of Francis of Assisi, who was, you know, out with the birds and bird bath saint and all of that. Well, when I tell people that he had been imprisoned for almost a year because at the time he lived, the kingdoms of Italy were separate kingdoms. There was no Italy. And so he was, his kingdom was at war with another kingdom and they ended up being, he ended up being in prison for almost a year and all for the rest of his life, he probably suffered from PTSD. Wow. Because he later in life could not did not want to sleep alone, not with somebody in his bed, but he wanted to have somebody in a room with him. He didn't want to be alone at night. <clears throat> and he had terrible nightmares. Um, or if I tell you that Francis of Assisi lived at the time of the Crusades, people go, huh? You know, they just kind of, their minds kind of go, ooh. And that he went on a crusade. He actually went on a crusade. You know, people just don't get the, the linking together. They don't get history. They have such a we have such a poor grasp of history. Or if I tell you that he met the Sufi poet Rumi. Francis of Assisi met Rumi? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, I didn't know that and I studied Rumi. That's pretty cool. Well, they so we don't we don't get these we don't get these contextual links. So we we isolate everything. Mm -hmm. So uh, with the saints, we isolate the saints. We say, okay, here they are, you know, and we don't realize that they were part of their historical period and that they were actually influential people at the time. They weren't just these holy, some of them were, but but a lot of them were not. I mean, Thomas Aquinas, for instance, has influenced philosophy since the period that, I mean, he's, he still is referred to in secular philosophy courses because he had such a profound influence on the philosophy of his time. Mm -hmm. So we don't we don't get we don't make links we don't see how we are part of a fabric we just see our little little square and we don't realize that we are actually part of this enormous tapestry and that there are threads that run all the way through but and do you think that that's true um i mean it's certainly true in history you know like that we as you said, you know, we see Francis of Assisi as isolated from his time. Um, but I think that we, that's part of the, the flaw, if you will, in the, the cognition or, or the applied cognition of humans. I mean, what I mean by that is, I'll just use a modern example. Let's use Adolf Hitler, right? And we'll say, you know, he becomes this isolated figure as opposed to saying, well, what time was he born in? 
what was going on in Germany or, or even Austria at that time. Right. You know, we look at Donald Trump and we say, well, you know, you know, he's an isolated figure in the in the GOP. But no, what was going on at that time? We look at Margaret Thatcher in Britain and we go, you know, she was an isolated figure in that time, but she wasn't. She, all these things are products of a building history and, a, and a, as you said, a tapestry of history that has come about. And yet we so, it's almost like we want to come, I mean, we know this, the, the human mind, we like to compartmentalize shit so that we don't have to actually examine it. And so we've got these saints and we've got these people of power and we've got them isolated, whether we're talking about Francis of Assisi or we're talking about Cleopatra or we're talking about Margaret Thatcher. They're, they all, they don't weave. We don't understand that. And we want to pull somebody out and that's good. That's cool. We want to pull them out and have a look at them, but we don't look at what forms them. You know, and I think that this is part of the challenge is that you know, I know I had a conversation with a very dear friend last night and my friend said, I don't know how you came to be you based on what I now know about your childhood. Mm. Right. It, it, it doesn't make sense. And as soon as it doesn't make sense, we 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 separate it. Right. We go, well, the, it didn't really have that much influence. No, it had all the influence. What I did with that influence is different than what maybe my siblings did. So that, don't you think that that's an interesting piece when we're trying to, because you you know, when you're talking about Catholic history and you're talking about Egyptology, which is obviously history, isn't that the great challenge? How do we tying these things together? Yes, it is the great challenge. And I think that, you know, the title of this podcast, Curiosity Bites, is where it where it intersects mm -hmm. people simply are not curious enough right they're, they're willing to accept what's on the surface mm -hmm. and they don't either allow themselves to or they don't um even go there to say well what what if what happens how do we go you know what's beyond this uh, we tend to accept the distillation of information that we're given and mm -hmm. we don't tend to explore underneath it mm -hmm. i don't think that people are curious enough i mean how many people i i was an adult before it dawned on me that moses and thutmosis were probably the same person you know right. it, it 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 isn't something that we're, we're we aren't encouraged now children are naturally curious but they don't always have enough contextual information to ask the right questions in order to explore more deeply those subjects. And by the time we have the contextual information to begin to explore, we're discouraged from doing so. And we're discouraged. We want to have everything distilled down into something that's, as you said, compartmentalized, but it's also easy to handle and easy to comprehend. And, and is just, we want to be able to explain a Donald Trump. Yeah. And we want to be able to have it explained in such a way that we can put him in a box so that we could either recreate him in the future, if you're a supporter of him, or we can prevent him from ever being created again, not realizing that 
he was the product of a time and a place and a parent parents and you know lots of things fell into his creation not the least of which was everything that was going around him in the world that yeah, allowed that's what him. i'm saying that he's yeah. he's a product of his, of his family he's a product of the gop he's a product of the right but he's also a product of this 70 years plus of his life yes and what has been what you know that he grew up in a time of studio 54 yeah you know um which was party time and um having an alcoholic brother and you know uh, you know so the things that are intimate like the brother and things that are um more cultural like you know the disco 80s you know 70s rather um you know all those things i think that this is part of the challenge so when you're reading an icon it's like the the image is the isolated piece yes but the movement of the hand or the direction of the hand or the halo or whatever it might be is giving you maybe a different context so i i feel like so often we as humans we miss context and we're coming towards the end of this first part of the show and i want to go into into uh just in the second part i want to talk about your book which is dinner with the saints because i want to examine who cares what i mean by that is i'm not a catholic i not me as in dove but anybody says i'm not a catholic why would i read about dinner with the saints exactly and what the heck is a saint anyway um uh, is this some crap that's just made up and somebody decided so i want to come into that and okay. I want to come into why you decided to do it that way. And it's, and, and also why it was, because uh, you did a weird thing with it. You turned it into a cookbook as well, which is fantastic with your co-author. So we're going to come back for part two of this delicious episode of Curiosity Bites with our fabulous guest, Wardine, and uh, her book, which is called Dinner with the Saints. And we're going to uh, explore that and explore all the connections with that. And if you're interested in this conversation, you want to be part of this conversation, you can simply go over to Curiosity Bites. You'll find it on Facebook. There's a group there. You can chat about this. And you can also, of course, you can go into DoveBaron.com and you can click on the link there for Curiosity Bites. And by the way, if you are listening, you're liking the show, please do us a favor. Rate, review, and subscribe to the show. We're going to be back in a couple. Well, we'll be back in a flash, really. But we'll be back in a moment with part two of our delicious episode. Stay curious, my friends. Stay curious.